We'll do one and two first, because I've got people waiting. Good morning. This meeting will come to order. Welcome to the October 25th, 2023 meeting of the Budget and Finance Committee. I'm Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by uh, our Board President, um, Supervisor Aaron Preskin. Our clerk is Brent Halipa. I would like to thank uh, Michael Baltazar uh, from SFGov TV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, on October uh, 17th, 2023, the Board of Supervisors approved a motion discontinuing a remote public comment and participation at all uh, board and committee meetings. Uh, going forward, all public comment will be taken in person uh, with remote access only being provided for those who acquire ADA accommodation. Uh, for those currently in attendance, uh, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Uh, when your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, uh, please line up. Uh, right along those curtains to your right, my left. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee clerk at uh, b-r-e-n-t dot j-a-l-i-p-a at s-f-g-o-v dot o-r-g. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's one Dr. Carlton B. Gillett Place. Room two, uh, 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Uh, just a friendly reminder for those in attendance uh, during this meeting, uh, please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices, and should you have any documents to be included as part of the file, they should be sub submitted to myself, the clerk. Uh, and finally, Madam Chair, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors' agenda of October 31st, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And before we call the items uh, and go forward with the agenda today, uh, we will need to excuse Supervisor Mandelman and just wanted to clarify that uh, Board President Peskin is uh, joining us for this committee uh, as, as a member so that we can have quorum this morning. Yes, and on that motion to excuse uh, Vice Chair Mandelman, uh, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Uh, we have two ayes with uh, Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. Uh, with that, I uh, would like to um, just kind of let everyone know in the general public and our department staff that uh, for the items that we have budget and legislative analyst report, which, is, uh, which are items uh, one, two, four, and 6 through 11 on today's agenda. For these items, we will have department's presentation first, uh, and then we'll follow by the budget and legislative uh, analyst, and then we will take questions and public comments. And with that, Mr. Clerk, can you please call items 1 and 2 together? Items 1 and 2. Uh, one second, Madam Chair. Uh, items 1 and 2 are resolutions approving amendments to contracts for the following programs and the city and county acting by and through its Department of Children, Youth, and their families with board approval under the charter. Uh, item 1 approves a fourth amendment to a contract for the Japanese Community Youth Council. Opportunities for all intermediary program between the Japanese Community Youth Council uh, to increase the grant amount by approximately 3.4 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 13.7 million and with no change to the grant item. 
um, item number two is a resolution approving the a seventh amendment to a contract for the YMCA Urban Services Truancy Assessment and Resource Center program to increase the grant amount by approximately 606000 for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 4400 and to grant, extend the grant term for one year from July 1st, 2023 for a new term of July 1st, 2013 through June 30th, 2024. Um, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, these two items were heard last week. We have some questions, um, and I know that DCYF uh, is our Department Children, Youth, and Their Families is they're here uh, to answer questions. But we also have Dr. Cheryl Davis here, uh, Director of Human Rights Commission. Um, it's also available for questions. I think today is that uh, if we could have a little bit uh, more updates and information about. Um, about the data that we have requested for from DCYF. I apologize one more time. Hello? Okay, there we go. Great. Uh, hello, Chair Chan and Supervisor Peskin. My name is Amiho Gomes, and I am the Director of Strategic Initiatives for DCYF. Uh, we are going to provide some additional information for you. We have a presentation about the opportunities for all item one. Um, we do not have a presentation for item two, uh, but we're available for any additional questions. Um, so we have a PowerPoint that we've provided. Um, and while that's being pulled up, um, I'm just going to note that we have Director Davis here with us today, who is a partner, um, the lead of this initiative, and we actually are going to have her uh, start us off with our first slide once you pull that up and then I will come back and do the other you're ones. supposed to pull it up on your computer am I yes <laughs> okay, no one told me that <laughs> apologies While he's pulling that up, I will just say a few things just about opportunities for all. Um, 2018, the program, the initiative launched. Um, the contract was leveraged with DCYF for JCYC. In our initial launch of the program, we anticipated less than 1,000 young people would participate. We had over 1,200 young people participate that first summer. Um, JCYC has consistently helped us to um, advance and pay those young people. This summer we had over 2,700 young people that were going through Opportunities for All specifically through that grant um, and it has grown um, since 2018 to that number. And so each year we have had a shortfall. Um, JCYC has been leveraging their own dollars as well as um, private dollars that have been um, received for that. We are trying to make sure to make JCYC whole because they have covered the cost of making sure that the overage of young people continue to get paid during the summer. I think one of the things that we're working on collectively, um, both with JCYC as well as with DCYF and the Human Rights Commission, is to better coordinate the data. The Human Rights Commission staff and the partners at JCYC are managing and supporting the activation of opportunities for all, um, and we just need to do a better coordinated effort of how we track the data and how we share that data out. Um, there are additional dollars that we cover outside of even just this grant that support the people who organize and oversee that, which come through OEWD dollars. I would be 
you know, more than happy to come back and give a more comprehensive report and explanation of the fullness of the opportunities for all programming, but this is just sharing the work that's done through DCYF and the JCYC contract, which has been um, sorely underfunded, and we've been leveraging outside dollars, but they are in the hole, and we would just like to make sure that they get made whole again from the funds that they've already covered to cover this program the last five years. Thank you. Um, Good morning, Supervisors. Nick Bernard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. So these two items were at the last budget and finance meeting. They were continued because uh, you know, we did not have complete information about program performance. Um, in particular, on the Opportunities for All grant, we did get revised data from the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, and I appreciate their ongoing engagement in providing that data. The data, the initial data we got showed 800 children participating in the program in fiscal year 22, and then about 1,200 in the program in fiscal year 23. That was data f from Japanese Community Youth Council to DCYF to us. Then we got new data from the Human Rights Commission that actually showed there were over 22 people in the pro 2,200 people in the program each fiscal year. So we've had a, there's been a substantial revision in the number of participants. Um, and in the correspondence from DCYF, the explanation was HRC's been directing JCYC to pay people in the program the past couple years but then JCYC hasn't been reporting the participant data to, to the grant holder, DCYF. Um, and we don't have any data on the number of hours that people participated in the program in any of in the past two fiscal years. So what has, what's going on here is that there's $3 million that has been paid that has exceeded the annual grant budget for this agreement that is now being added to the contract funded by a, a work order from OEWD. Um, so this is a kind of very uh, Rube Goldberg-like contraption of a government program where OEWD is funding a program at HRC, but the employer of record is JCYC under a grant from DCYF, right? So it, I think that the entire structure um, makes it hard to uh, you know, produce high quality data. I think it reduces accountability for you know, actually managing the program. And I'm concerned that there's ne the numbers have changed so much that I really do, we have an updated recommendation here mm -hmm. that the controller's office undertake a financial audit of this program to examine whether the financial controls are sufficient, and if they aren't, to do some transaction testing, because I, I don't feel like I have, I think the program is well-intentioned. I don't have high confidence that the money going out the door, you know, we're $13 million in, is, you know, accurately dispersed. For item two, the YMCA program, we did get updated data from DCYF. Uh, it does show that they have, in fact, in the YMCA program, increased the number of participants between fiscal year 22 to fiscal year 23. Uh, we also got updated participation data for fiscal year 22-23. And it shows that you know, people are participating in the program. 
the, I will say that the objective of what counts as full participation has been reduced by 70%. So it was 15 hours in fiscal year 22, it's now five hours in fiscal year 23. So we, they, they are high numbers, but the bar has been lowered in terms of um, what counts as full participation. But I think given the comprehensiveness of the data that we got, uh, I, am, I do feel comfortable recommending item two for approval but just clarifying that this resolution, the uh, approval is retroactive. We do have a recommendation to make that amendment. Uh, before I call on Supervisor Peskin uh, for further questioning, I, I just want to put in a little bit of context, uh, both referencing the last week, but also uh, in the past when these uh, contracts came before this body. Um, and let me start off with the easier one, I would say, is, is uh, you know, the context about the YMCA one that's specifically about truancy intervention services. And it, it is with the recognition that uh, what is deemed now as truancy um, for the San Francisco Unified School Districts during the pandemic uh, has been challenging. So I, I really want to first recognize that, um, that what uh, the truancy defin by definition has significantly changed uh, for the unified school district. So I can understand um, how this also has changed uh, when it comes to the uh, performance evaluation. Now, when it comes down to the JCYC contract, uh, when it first came before this body was because DCYF, our Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families recognized the f that uh, the contract would JCYC with Japanese Community Youth Council um, was just really supposed to come to the board uh, for approval, both in terms of the dollar amount of the contract and the terms, the, the length of the term and duration of the, of the contract, really um, according to Charter 9.118, should, should, you know, should have really come to the board for approval first before you continue on with this contract, uh, of the continuation of this contract. And it's with that recognition that this contract then first came before this body last year. And with that said, building on that, is, I think that it's a continuing reason why it is difficult for the budget and legislative analysts to say that this is, uh, that they can actually recommend this and that it's not a policy decision of the board. Clearly, it is the policy of the decisions of this body to say that we will accept retroactive nature of this contract altogether. And with that, Supervisor Peskin. I just, and I realize that this committee has heard this before, um, and thankfully I did uh, actually read the item and was briefed by the budget and legislative analysts, and I apologize if this was asked at your last meeting, but, and I understand that there is this Rube Goldberg uh, situation here with a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but can anybody, DCYF, explain why the first set of numbers of 800 and 1,200 grew. I mean, I understand when they're off by, you know, 5% or 10%, but I don't understand how they could be off by 100%. Yeah. Um, well, so I think it's helpful to, to understand the, the context of the work order um, and the reason why we... Um, the reason why we have such the projections and the actuals actually look as the way they did when we came before you a couple weeks ago. So the work order was supposed to come over uh, in, for fiscal year 21 and 22 and 22-23. And it was supposed to support uh, placements and staffing for JCYC. Now, uh, those dollars obviously did not make it into this 
grant during those fiscal years, and there was several reasons for that. Um, some of them are uh, process-related within our department. Uh, we are we're extending um, all of our grant agreements for over 400 contracts because we added a year to our funding cycle because of the pandemic. That created a large backlog. The timing of when the dollars originally came to us had us push it into the subsequent fiscal year. And so while that was the case, JCYC was projecting their numbers based on their discussions with HRC as the lead of this program. Um, and so the projections that they have in our system are based on the expectation of receiving these funds. Now, as those funds did not come, they are then invoicing us based on the dollars that are in the grant and reporting the number of participants based on those dollars. The, the additional numbers here we got from JCYC from their payroll system because we basically wanted to show that they actually are paying way more than what they're reporting to us. They're reporting what, what they basically are being paid to do, which is the dollars in the contract. So these additional numbers really come about as a result of the fact that they are actually working with the, the total number of youth that, that they were directed to do by HRC, um, but only reporting to us based on what they had within their contract. So, so those delays stretched out for two years. And so that's, you know, we're in 23-24 we're in, uh, now. So um, that's basically the reason why those numbers look so different. And I think it's important to note that what's in our CMS system is just for the grant itself. Okay, it does not represent the totality of the opportunities for all initiative. And even the numbers that the BLA received from HRC represent the total number that HRC works with. And there are actually other, um, other uh, CBOs that actually pay young people under OFA as well. So, you know, the numbers that we got from JCYC represent the numbers that they have paid. The numbers from HRC are the total in the, the totality of, of Opportunities for All, including other CBOs. And then the numbers in our CMS are just what's been reported relative to the grant dollars that are in the contract right now. Maybe this is a question from Mr. Osaki, but how did JCYC manage to float this major amount of money without going upside down? So I think it's also you know, good to note that JCYC has been a partner on these types of programs for decades, literally. Um, and so they have a large capacity to be able to essentially float dollars against all their employment contracts because they're all cost reimbursement based. And so they have lines of credit, they have other funding sources that they, that they use. And as a partner on these types of initiatives, they have an understanding that you know, contracting issues and other things can delay the, 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 the money going into those contracts. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason for their willingness to continue to work with this initiative. Um, they, they are the partner that runs the Mayor's Youth Employment and Education Program, the San Francisco Youth Works Program. All of those are um, initiatives that came about through mayors, right? So um, they, they, they have some experience working in these types of conditions and a, and a commitment, essentially, to provide these types of services. Uh, and so I think that's a large reason for, for why they were able to do that and their, their willingness to do that. So do you know, did they have to call on a line of credit in order to float this additional million dollars? That's what I've been told, yes. And then the cost of that money we reimburse them for, because that a line of credit ain't free. We reimburse them for, for the amount of dollars that uh, they pay out to the young people. So, um, you know, our expectation is that we re we're reimbursing them for the wages that they pay. Having a line of credit, I know from experience with, with JCYC, is something that they maintain regularly, uh, mainly because they have to float large amounts of money every, mainly in the summertime when they employ thousands of young people. 
But I, I would just add that there are private dollars that they that we've been trying to leverage that are supposed to help with some of these things that we could potentially on the back end help cover some of those costs that are absorbed from the cost of doing business with the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you. Uh, we'd like to have Mr. Devin McCauley uh, from the controller's office to help us understand uh, as how do we fulfill the um, recommendation from the budget and legislative analyst. Good morning, Supervisors. Devin McCauley, Controller, Citywide Budget Manager. Our Controller's Audit Division has a robust schedule, but would be happy to look into this and follow back up with the committee. Thank you. And I think that the expectation is also, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the issue, the, the RFP for this uh, has gone out um, this summer of 2023. The expectation is we will have something, uh, you will have some results of the new RFP in 2024. And I see that Director Sue, Maria Sue wants to answer this question. Yes. Uh, thank you for the question, uh, Chair Chan. Uh, I do want to just speak to how complicated this coordinated system is. As with most coordinated system, it's quite complicated. Um, what we wanted to do was to move this effort as fast as possible to ensure that young people had access to all these job opportunities. And as Dr. Cheryl Davis was building out the Human Rights Commission to hold and manage this work, we partnered together because DCYF can, make, can do grant making. And so that's the partnership that HRC has with DCYF. Through this RFP, we're going to transfer the management of this work over to HRC primarily because HRC over the last several years have built out the capacity to manage this work now. And this is what we do in city government and city departments because we help each other. Um, and that's what, what, what this whole initiative is about. Um, we look forward to working with the controller's office so that as they dig into um, how this initiative was managed, um, hopefully they will see the partnership between the three city departments, including the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, um, in making sure that we all have a role in supporting, um, play a role in supporting our young people in the city. Thank you. I, I think that I want to also flag, like, you know, for the audits, like, I think that part of the goal is also to figure out, you know, I think that uh, Vice Chair Mandelman last week has indicated, and I, which I agree, is that structurally it's problematic, which kind of resulted in sort of the disconnect between what the numbers submitted by HRC and CYC I mean, uh, JCYC, as well as with, um, you know, DCYF. I think there's just, there's some disconnect between the system reporting back. And so I hope that through the, through the audit is also to reflect back what you can, what we can do better as a city with the new RFP that's going out and to continue to track participation rate and reimbursement rate. Uh, with that, Supervisor Safai. <clears throat> Thank you, Director Sue. I, I think you, you hit on a couple of points that I wanted to make. I think that it's with good intentions that departments coordinate with one another, but it seems as though in this situation there wasn't enough transfer quick enough. When I hear that more children are served than what were uh, contracted for, I think that's a good thing. I think that it also puts uh, nonprofits in a very difficult situation because they're essentially being asked to bear the burden of an initiative that the mayor has and that the city has to employ children, which is a you know, worthy initiative. 
Um, but with haste comes mistakes. And so I think that that's the importance of having this audit done because I don't think anyone believes there was anything nefarious done in any way. But it is in your wheelhouse, Director Sue, to help the nonprofit work with them to have better accountability and number making. But it sounds like you're sh that responsibility is now shifting over to HRC to do direct work with JCYC. And I, and I, have, I have worked with JCYC for years. I, I've, they're one of the best organizations in the city that serves youth. And so I, I just want to say that on the record. really appreciate the work that they have done over the years. Um, but it sounds like there were too many cooks in the kitchen. And so we got to remove some of the cooks and hand it over to one group to, to manage and then help hopefully reimburse uh, JCYC for the work that they've done as quickly as possible, given the fact that we're facing a half a billion dollar budget deficit. There's not going to be a lot of money that's going to be handed out as in past years. It's going to be a lot less. People are going to be asked to do more with less. So it's hopefully we can get them reimbursed and have the money to them as quickly as possible and have this good program go forward in, a, in, a, in an accountable way. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I think that, you know, as DCYF, you know, going through this process of RFP, you're opening up for the next five years, you know, and along with Supervisor Ronan, who just passed, we and the board that's just passed the legislation that she authored, which is really figure out multi-year contract that's inclusive of also cost of doing business. And this is a part where I would recognize JCYC. Like, we're very fortunate that this has been a very, like, I would say, you know, a, a a very uh, community like leading and champions like that been like a tradition almost in, in, of the San Francisco community service. And that's why this is someone, an organization actually has the capacity to be able to have a line of credit. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any other uh, com community organizations with less of the stature and the ability would be able to sustain a two years uh, of without cost of doing business uh, adding to that. And so, I hope that it's a lesson for all of us and then just wanted to fly for DCYS for the upcoming budget year as well is that um, cost of doing business got to be calculated into all the contracts that we're considering. Thank you so much. And with that, let's uh, open to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item uh, should line up uh, right along those curtains. And uh, we invite the... Uh, we invite speakers to come forward to the lectern, and all speakers will have two minutes uh, to speak. Um, Hi, Tracy Gallardo with the District 10 office. I'm here uh, in support of the OFA. It is a new initiative. It was a new service model that would be more inclusive of all youth and try to reach out for, um, to more kids. It has been successful in reaching out to kids from public housing, disconnected youth. It has also... Um, during the pandemic, reached out to kids who had to support their families through this income. And so a lot of those kids worked during the pandemic when a lot of agencies were shut down. They provided one-to-one -one service and tutoring to kids who were disconnected from school through the Latino Task Force and other agencies. These kids were the sole supporters of their families. I just want to emphasize how very important this program is. There are kids who didn't have proper paperwork to work through OFA, and they've made uh, ways to actually do that. 
These kids have been amazing. They are leaders. They are the future leaders of San Francisco. And JCYC has been providing this service, HRC, DCYF, for many years. I myself am a product of youth employment um, and, you know, through PIC and then later became MAIP um, through JCYC, through Horizons Unlimited. I just do want to emphasize how very important these jobs are and the need to get these, this money released to JCYC so that they can continue to serve kids so these kids can continue to lead our city. Thank you. Thank you much, Tracy Gallardo. Next speaker, please. Good morning. It's fine. Yes, good. JCYC, anything. The problem is that you have to restore trust. Trusting because, no, there is a cooking behind the scenes, Look, That's the problem. And we are going to... So everybody's trying to make the most of any situation because the wind is turning, right, guys? So grab the money. Yes, have a good intention, but basically it's corruption. So at some point it becomes hot air, it's bullshit. Sorry for the word. That's what exactly what's going on. And we, the city won't get away with it for too long. We have to restore trust. Contracts are fine, sure, but... Uh, thank you much. Uh, seeing no other speakers, uh, Madam Chair. Seeing no more public comments, public comments is now closed. Uh, I, because um, of this item that is, uh, I think that we will be requesting um, the controllers to do a, perform an audit, uh, we, uh, which I also think that DCYF has accepted a recommendation to reduce the not to exceed amount by $400,000. Um, for item one, um, I would like to amend according to the recommendation provided by um, budget and legislative analysts. Uh, with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion, uh, to amend the resolution in item one uh, to lower the not to exceed amount uh, to 13.3 uh, million. Uh, Member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. And uh, with that, I want to say, you know, again, um, just it's been a, clearly a, a policy matter for the board. I uh, look forward to seeing just how this problem will fix and the results of the audit. And so with that, item one will be, uh, I'm making the motion to move item one to full board without recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And on the motion to move item number one, to the full board without recommendation. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you. And the motion passes. And I would like to move item number two to full board with recommendation. A roll call, please. And on that motion for item number two to be forwarded to the board with a positive recommendation, Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you. That motion passes as well. And Mr. Clerk, please call item number three. Item number three 
is a resolution accepting a gift of design documents with an estimated value had approximately 1.3 million from the Friends of Harvey Milk Plaza to assist Public Works in the redesign of Harvey Milk Plaza and affirming the Planning Department's determination under uh, the California Environmental Quality Act. Madam Chair. Sorry, thank you. And with that, we have, I believe, San Francisco Public Works here. Good morning, Supervisors. My name is Jumoke Akintelo. I'm for the Harvey Milk. Uh, I'm so sorry to interrupt. If you could speak directly into the mic, please. Thank you much. I'll start again. Uh, Jumoke Akintelo, Project Manager with San Francisco Public Works, and I'm managing the Harvey Milk Plaza redesign. And so we're here before you to, um, to request an approval of resolution to accept uh, the design document gift from the Friends of Having Milk Plaza. And uh, the value of the design is $1.275 million. And this would help us continue to advance the design to construction documents for the project. So I'm just going to take us through... Um, milestones on the project. Again, as I said, this is the redesign of the Harvey Milk Plaza, and it's a memorial to uh, Harvey Milk Plaza, and this would include uh, improving safety and security, and also um, landscape elements to the, to the plaza. I'm not going to go through these key elements, um, but the milestones, back in November last year, we got the Historic Preservation Commission approved the Path of Gold relocation on that project um, categoric exemption for sequel. And um, the 16th of November, we got approval of the certificate of appropriateness for the relocation of the Path of Gold light standards for the project. And March 21st, 2023, um, the state grant for $1.5 million was executed, and June 2023, we requested a 12-month extension from the state. August 2023, the state confirmed no objections to this uh, time extension. So as of now, which is uh, June 2023, we, Public Works, assembled a, a team of as-needed consultants to continue to advance the project and the first phase was the program valid validation phase based on the design from the previous design from the Friends of Having Milk Plaza. August 2023 a program validation report was issued. October 2023 um, the as-needed consultants were authorized to proceed with advancing the design. And this is projected timelines of when we'll be moving forward and how we'll be moving forward with the design. So between March 2024 and June 2024, we, need, we would have 90% of the construction documents. And June 2024 to September 2024 would have pricing and the permit package for the project. So um, that ends the presentation. I'll be here if you have any questions. Thank you. And uh, with that, let's go to public comments on this item. Thank you. Yes, members of the public wish to speak on this item number two. 
Oh, sorry, item number three. How should it line up now along, uh, along those windows? Um, and all speakers will have two minutes to speak. Uh, first speaker, please. Good morning, supervisors. My name is Brian Springfield. I'm the executive director of the Friends of Harvey Milk Plaza. On behalf of the board of Friends of Harvey Milk Plaza, the members of our honorary committee and advisory committee, and all of our founding friends who have supported our work this far, um, it's my pleasure to endorse this resolution um, to make a gift of the conceptual design to the city. We began this process by holding meetings to learn how the community wanted to see Harvey Milk honored at the space. Um, we listened and along with our design partners at SWA, we responded to what we heard. And so this gift comes with the endorsement of all the major neighborhood groups, uh, community benefit, Castro Community Benefit District, Castro LGBTQ Cultural District, Castro Merchants, the DeBose Triangle and Eureka Valley Neighborhood Associations, and the Alice B. Toklas and Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Clubs. So that's a, that's a, a lot of consensus from these community organizations that is uh, almost unprecedented. We're also proud to have endorsements from community leaders and historic figures like Cleve Jones, Ann Cronenberg, Dan Nicoletta, and Harvey's nephew and Milk family spokesman, Stuart Milk. So I believe that all this consensus is a reflection of all the good that has been built into this design that is being gifted um, so that we can maximize investment at the site. Um, one of the things we heard from people who use the transit station is they did not want transit functions at the site compromised and this design not only achieves that but it improves the transit functions at the Castro Muni station that shares the site. In addition to that, it creates opportunities for visibility and representation at the historic intersection for historically underrepresented groups, including lesbians and queer women, and members of the BIPOC and trans communities. It provides gathering space that will serve as a catalyst for ongoing engagement around issues of social justice, and it will drive daytime visitor foot traffic to the Castro's main business corridor. On top of all this, and most important, it will celebrate Harvey Milk and the movement that he led um, that took place in the Castro um, Harvey Milk continues to act as a worldwide ambassador for the very best that our city has to offer. And Thank you much, Brian Springfield, for you. your comments. Next speaker, please. Hello, I'm Amy Callender, Senior Manager of Policy and Education at the San Francisco Parks Alliance, speaking in support of this gift to the city from our fiscally sponsored partner, Friends of Harvey Milk Plaza. At SF Park Science, we partner with communities and public agencies to create, sustain, and advocate for parks and public spaces that welcome and belong to everyone. Therefore, we're especially excited about the plans for the redesign of Harvey Milk Plaza. By incorporating newly accessible pathways, inventive pedestrian seating, and a new pedestal to overlook the intersection of Market and Castro Streets, this design, this project, embodies Harvey Milk's community-focused legacy. This project also celebrates and reflects the long and impactful history of the LGBTQ plus community in the Castro through artistic and commemorative elements. Our partners at Friends of Harvey Milk Plaza have worked tirelessly on this project since 2016, incorporating community input in their efforts to redesign this important historical plaza in the Castro. It's our pleasure to support them in this exciting new phase for this important public space, providing locals and visitors with an innovative, accessible space in a quintessential San Franciscan neighborhood. Thank you. <coughs> Pardon. Thank you much for providing your comments. Next speaker, please. Uh, hi, hi, hi. Uh, why are you reading a, a script? It's a script. It doesn't come from you, Miss. I feel it. I, I can tell. 
you can't? I can't. <laughs> so he, look, that's enough. Uh, okay, fine, Harvey Milk. Yes, what happened to him, by the way? Wasn't he, when he, wasn't he used as a, to create a situation? We don't know. Okay, I don't know. I can't tell. But okay, basically, be honest. Be true to yourself. Declare your conflict of interest. Then it becomes it's transparent. We know what we are doing, and we are doing it better. That's the goal, obviously, to things better. Thank you much for addressing this committee. And seeing no further speakers, Madam Chair. Thank you. Seeing no more public comment, public comment is now closed. Um, I uh, just want to express my gratitude for uh, seeing this design for the Harvey Milk Plaza. Um, you know, the last time that I remember is, you know, having this board really dedicating uh, our airport terminal uh, to be the Harvey Milk Terminal. And that was very significant and groundbreaking for this city, even as diverse and progressive as we are. Um, and just to seeing that finally it is time to memorialize the space uh, in honor of former supervisor Harvey Milk. And with that, I would like to also be added as a co-sponsor of this resolution uh, and accepting this gift and, um, and just express, again, my gratitude for that. So with that, I would like to send this item to full board with recommendation and a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, uh, Member Safai. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. And uh, with that, please call item number four. Yes, item number four is a resolution approving an emergency declaration of the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission pursuant to the Administrative Code to contract resources to perform sewer main, water main, and street repairs on Fillmore Street between Green Street and Union Street which were damaged by a water main failure with a total estimated cost not to exceed $5 million. Uh, Madam Chair. Thank you. And today we have Mr. Steve uh, Ritchie, uh, Assistant General Manager for Water uh, from SFPUC for our San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Thank you. And tell us all about this one. <laughs> Morning, Chair Chan and Supervisors. Steve Ritchie, Assistant General Manager for Water. Uh, I am here speaking on the Fillmore and Green 16-inch water main break, uh, which in my 14 years is probably within the top three in terms of community disruption. So this was a, obviously a very big deal. Um, just a little background on the San Francisco water system. We actually have 24 pressure zones throughout the city. This map shows those pressure zones uh, and where all the water mains are. There are about 1,250 miles of water mains serving almost you know, a million residents and, uh, and workers that are in San Francisco during the day. So it's a, a very large complex system that we have. Um, the main break occurred on the evening of September 10th and 11th. Uh, it was a break on the 16-inch water transmission main. Uh, the difference between the transmission and the distribution main is transmission is supplying water in larger areas and keeping pressure up. Distribution is what goes straight to houses. Uh, so the break was on the 16-inch main, and it also disrupted the 8-inch distribution main locally. <clears throat> the release of water undermined the Fillmore and Green intersection and Fillmore from Green to Union. So the red hatched area there is the area that was physically disrupted in the streets. Uh, and the blue area is where it runs downhill and obviously affected uh, a number of properties uh, which are working with the city attorney's office on claims that they have. 
Um, we basically have been working uh, virtually seven days a week uh, to replace uh, and restore the utilities uh, as well as the pavement there. Uh, you can see it started with fixing the 16-inch water main that night. Uh, the sewer main on Fillmore from Green to Union, uh, we avoided working in the Union intersection, would have, which would have dragged out the uh, work longer over time. Uh, sewer laterals that need to be reconnected to properties from the sewer main. PG&E had a two-inch gas line in the area that didn't necessarily need replacement, but as long as the street was open, they could get in quick and do that. Uh, sewer catch basins and culverts, uh, and then the eight-inch water main uh, we needed to replace. Uh, as well as then restoring the street base paving and sidewalks. And we're looking for completion of all this work uh, in mid-November. Uh, the, uh, the diagram on the left shows completed for many things uh, for a number of these activities. It does not show that the water main replacement is complete. It actually was completed last night. Uh, so that water main is in place uh, about a week early than what we had projected. So that's, that's a good sign. So we've been working extremely hard with all the parties involved to make sure that this works and really working hard to make sure the community uh, feels supported throughout. Uh, some of the photos, uh, when you have a big water main break, uh, you have a lot of disruption. So the left-hand photo there just shows, shows the initial damage there. That, that concrete thing in the middle is the riser from the sewer uh, from below. Uh, so it was still stable there, but you can see all the soil was all washed away around that. So the very first thing we had to do uh, starting on the 11th was bring in a bunch of sand to help provide support for all the work that would go on. Uh, so then progressively, uh, the slides show the trenching and the sewer work going on, and then the PG&E gas line replacement, uh, and ultimately uh, the last bit of work we've had here underground, the water main work uh, that we just, com just completed last night. Um, the estimated cost to replace all these, uh, the 8-inch water main laterals, the 15-inch sewer main laterals, the sewer catch basin and culverts, the sidewalk curb ramp, curb and pavement work, uh, the estimate is about $3.5 million, uh, and we seem to be on budget for that, which is a, a very good thing. Uh, people have been working very hard cooperatively to make that happen. Uh, PG&E's gas main is not part of our work, uh, but there may be uh, a claim from PG&E to the city attorney's office uh, for replacement of that. Uh, so that's, that's where we've been working, and as I said, we've been working really hard with the neighbors <clears throat> and uh, all the people involved. I'd really like to call out the work of uh, PUC staff, DPW staff, um, MTA staff, because parking has been a mess in that area as well, um, and the city attorney's office, uh, PG&E uh, throughout all this, uh, and keeping in close contact with uh, Supervisor Stephanie. And, and one individual who I'd like to you know, uh, appreciate here is Allison Castema of my staff, who has been kind of coordinating all this with daily conference calls. And uh, it is the definition of herding cats, but the cats all were pretty cooperative, and, and we got through it, uh, and we're pretty close to done. So be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, and it's always good to hear a week early BLA report. Item four is a resolution approving the Public Utilities Commission uh, emergency declaration related to um, a water main break in the marina that resulted in flooding in that neighborhood. Uh, the resolution includes a $5 million not to exceed amount, uh, which we, de we detailed the project work 
um, on page 14 of our report, you'll see it's about $3.5 million of work. The bulk of that will be contracted out or has been contracted out to three firms. Um, and the contracting in this case, because there's an emergency declaration, is exempt from Chapter 6, 12A, 12B, 12C, and 14B of the Administrative Code. The cost of this work is funded by water revenue bonds. Um, and there's about $1.4 million in contingency built into this not to exceed amount to account for project delays, which we call out as a policy consideration. We also note that this water main that broke was considered a low priority in PUC's um, priority plan for uh, replacing and maintaining water pipes, uh, which is a function of how old they are and wh whether there is water breaks um, nearby and, and earthquake data. And so I think that, you know, it's, you know, it was a low priority, but it still caused a disaster. I, I think that there's a couple ways to move forward. One is that the board could request PUC to revisit it, the way that it prioritizes um, maintaining pipes. I also think that this could be addressed um, in the budget in May. PUC will be coming back for their capital and operating budget. There's $50 million this year allocated uh, to water pipe maintenance according to information we received from the department during the reporting process. I think what we could do in May is identify how much in the capital plan is allocated to this kind of maintenance and make adjustments to their budget to put more funding in, if you'd like. Thank but you. We do recommend approval of item four. Okay. Thank you. Um, will that be a consideration when you do come before um, this body in May to be ready to discuss your maintenance um, upkeep funding and be able to have an analysis that whether your current budget is sufficient? Uh, yes, absolutely. We will speak to that in the budget process. That'd be great. Let's put a note to that. It's like one of those yeah. like <laughs> yellow tag <laughs> or, you know, just tag it. And then when you do come back in May, we look forward to having that discussion. Thank you. And with that, let's go to public comment. Yes. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up now uh, and you'll have two minutes to speak. No matter how much money you put in this project, uh, the water is important. I think, I know, the goal is to replace the pipes that exist, uh, to replace the material that it's made of, like, from whatever it was made of, to plastic, I think. That's what is the project about. Then, uh, okay. Thank you much for addressing this committee. And with no further speakers, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, with that, uh, seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Uh, would like to move this item to full board with recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And with that motion to forward to the full board with a positive recommendation, Member Safai. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes. With Vice Chair Mandelman excused. The motion passes. Item number five, please.
Yes, item number five is a hearing to consider the citywide project labor agreement that was executed. The annual reports for fiscal years 2021 to 20, sorry, 2020 to 2021 through 2022 to 2023 that highlight the efforts, accomplishments, and challenges encountered and the preliminary high-level methodology developed to evaluate whether the PLA has promoted the efficient, uh, economical, and timely completion of PLA-covered projects, how the cost-covered uh, projects, and the PLA's impact on local business enterprises and the local workforce. Uh, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, I will leave for Supervisor Safai to give us some remark and about what his intention with this hearing. No, I, I, thank you, Madam Chair. We're going to ask for this to be continued um, until the, I believe, November, November the 15th. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, all parties that were involved that wanted to participate in the hearing, and we let departments know that we would ask for the 15th. So if that's okay with you, I'll make a motion to continue this item to the 15th. Sounds good, and we'll open this for public comments on the motion to continue. Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on the continuance of this hearing, uh, please line up to speak now. And uh, yes, I'll start your time. Uh, yes, continue, continue, just hold on. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thank you much. If we have no more speakers, Madam Chair. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. And with that, uh, we'd like to... Uh, Roll call the motion proposed by Supervisor Safai to continue the item to November 15. Uh, yes. On that motion, um, offered by Member Safai that this hearing be continued to the November 15th meeting of this committee. Member Safai, Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mendelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. And with that, um, Mr. Clerk. Can you call item six and seven together? Yes, Madam Chair. Item number six is a resolution supplementing resolution number 196-20, uh, authorizing the issuance and sale of one or more series of special tax bonds for the city and county uh, special tax district number 2020-1 or Mission Rock facilities and services in the aggregate principal amount not to exceed approximately 58.3 million to be repaid from development special taxes, office special taxes, and shoreline special taxes leveled in tax zone one of the special tax district as applicable. Uh, approving related documents, including an official statement, a second supplement to development special tax fiscal agent agreement, office special tax fiscal agent agreement, shoreline tax zone one special tax fiscal agent agreement, bond purchase agreement, and continuing disclosure certificate, interpreting the rate and method of apportionment of special tax and determining other matters in connection therewith. Item number seven is a resolution approving certain documents and actions related to a pledge agreement by the city and counties. Uh, infrastructure Financing District Number Two, or Port of San Francisco, and Development Special Tax Bonds for City and County of San Francisco Special Tax District Number Twenty Twenty Dash One, also um, Mission Rock Facilities and Services, and determining other matters in connection therewith. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. We have Wyatt uh, Donnelly Landot uh, here from San Francisco Port. Thank you, Chair Chan. Good morning. Supervisor Safai and President Peskin. I'm here to present on the Mission Rock CFD bonds. This is the fourth series of bonds, and I'll touch on the first three that have been previously approved. Uh, so there are two resolutions. The first resolution uh, 
authorizes the issuance of the bonds up to a not to exceed amount of $58.3 million. And the second approves the pledge from the infrastructure financing district to these CFD bonds. And I will talk about the technical aspect of that later. Uh, just to t walk through what I'll be talking about. So I'll talk about the project itself and phase one. I'll give an update on where we are with construction. Then the project financial structure as background. Talk about the special tax district itself. You may also hear the may use the term community facilities district, special tax district, and community facilities district. I will use interchangeably. Uh, and then I'll talk about the bonds and kind of next steps on selling the bonds. So first on Mission Rock itself, the plan for phase one was four buildings and a five-acre park. Uh, two of the buildings were residential, totaling 537 units and 199 affordable housing units. The, there were two office buildings, uh, totaling about 550,000 square feet, 65,000 square feet of retail, and as I mentioned, that five-acre waterfront park in China Basin Park. This was several years ago that we started talking about phase one. Today, we've made significant project progress. Uh, so to give an update on that, parcel A, now known as the Canyon, is uh, complete, and there are residents moved in. The first moved in in June 2023. It's 283 units, including 102 affordable. It includes a district energy system, uh, and it's currently undergoing leasing for both market rate and affordable with both residents having signed leases and moved in. Um, parcel B is a 274,000 square foot office life science building. The Blackwater Recycling Plant, which is a, a water sustainability feature for the entire district, is there. There are multiple retailers that have signed leases um, and leasing in pro is in progress there. Parcel F is uh, in, still under construction. There's 254 apartments, including 97 affordable. The target is for it to receive a temporary certificate of occupancy in summer 2024 with residents moving in during that time. Uh, and Parcel G is the future Visa Global Headquarters. It's anticipated occupancy in early 2024, currently undergoing tenant improvements. China Basin Park, um, 4.4 acres of the park will be complete. There's a little waterfront portion that will be completed in a later phase. Um, and that's estimated for completion and opening in early to mid-2024. Uh, so now to move to the financial structure of the project, there are three main sources that go into funding the horizontal project. The horizontal project is all the infrastructure associated with it. So streets, uh, roads, parks, sidewalks, sewer, water, all of those elements are what these sources are funding. The first is developer and port equity equity, mostly developer equity. They put in the money uh, fronting it to build all this infrastructure and then receive 18% return for their investment to build that. The port puts in its land value to offset those costs. Um, ultimately, the final source is the CFD, Community Facilities District or Special Tax District, and the IFD, which captures increased tax value, property tax value at the site. So those two are the final source to repay the project. Um, going back to both the developer and the port for their investments. We really want to limit the developer return and capital on this and maximize the CFD IFD sources, which is why we are issuing this bond. We've expedited the, the issuance for this. Taxes just came on the roll this year and we wanted to get it through as fast as possible because it's one of the best things we can do to make sure the project succeeds financially. Um, so the special tax district itself has four distinct special taxes 
uh, development special tax, office special tax, shoreline special tax, and a contingent services special tax. The first three fund infrastructure. The last one is for ongoing services and operations of the site. So these bonds will be um, based on the first three. Previously, we issued three uh, series of special tax bonds on the development special tax. That is what's backed by the tax increment. Uh, the other two just started this year, which is why we can issue a new bond series. So the office and shoreline tax just started this year based on the, uh, the RMA finance, uh, tax structure. There's two major considerations we need to look at for this bond issuance. The first is the appraised or assessed value of the CFD. There's a value to lien ratio that the city has a policy of achieving, which is three to one, meaning the value of the site must be three times the total debt on the site. Um, we're far in excess of that. We had almost $700 million in appraised value uh, as of 915. Um, so that's not the limiting factor here. It was previously. The limiting factor here is the tax revenues. So we're going to fully leverage all the taxes within phase one. Those four vertical parcels are all paying special taxes now. It's based on the square footage. So it's, it's set, it's locked in. Um, and that's what allows us to issue up to $58.3 million in bonds. Um, so I'm going to jump into a series of additional slides. For time, I'm going to kind of jump, jump through these quickly and just make a few references. But the first thing I uh, just want to highlight on this slide is all the proceeds will reimburse the horizontal expenses and return associated with those. So we're expecting around a par amount total bonds of $47 million. After um, different fees and cost of issuance, we're going to have about $39.5 million expected to go into the project. You'll see that number's lower than the 58.3 we're requesting not to exceed. That is in case interest rates go down, we get to issue more bonds. Um, so we, wanna, we don't wanna come back and say, hey, we can issue more than that and have to request another one. We want flexibility to deal with rate changes. Um, and this uh, table also shows the good faith estimate for the bonds as of September 5th, 2023. Uh, this slide just highlights uh, different risk factors for these bonds. They're land secured, which is a special type of bond. They are sold without a rating. Um, the security for these bonds, that's what's backing them, is the site. They're solely payable from the Mission Rock CFD and tax increment generated by the IFD. They're not liabilities of the city, the general fund or the Port Harbor Fund. This slide goes over the preliminary official statement, which is the document that describes the bonds and we will post to sell the bonds, provide information. Um, there's various terms and, and different requirements about the POS and disclosure. Uh, and just, this is our timeline, just to, one thing I wanna highlight, we're currently targeting uh, late November, early December to actually close on the bonds. So I'm available here for questions, particularly if you have any questions about those reference slides. I'm also joined by colleagues, um, Bridget Katz with Office of Public Finance and Josh Keane from Port Development and uh, our partners, development partners with Mission Rock Partners. We also have representatives here. I wanted to thank the BLA for their work on this report. This is a very complicated financial structure and uh, they really jumped in and understood it excellently. Uh, so we're here for questions, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate the complication, thank you. Items six and seven are two resolutions related to uh, special tax bonds uh, related to the Mission Rock development area. 
uh, that would authorize $58.3 million of special tax bonds and also changes to the pledge agreement, which allows the Port Infrastructure Financing District uh, revenues to be used to pay for the bonds. Uh, the bonds are not obligations of the general fund. They are repaid, like I just said, from incremental property tax revenues generated within Mission Rock, as well as special taxes um, within the Mission Rock area. Uh, we know it, and the, the bonds will be used to repay developer costs for horizontal equity in phase one of the Mission Rock development area. Uh, this is the fourth such issuance of these kind of bonds, uh, but there is still, even after this issuance, $48 million of developer equity um, that was used to pay for horizontal infrastructure that will remain even after um, these bonds are issued. And so, and those costs, there's no phase one funding sources left to pay for those costs. They will have to be paid for by phase two funding sources. Uh, but there's no start date to phase two because it's been delayed due to the interest rate environment and commercial real estate environment. Um, so I, that is contributing to an overall increase in project costs um, than was originally anticipated. But again, those project costs are borne entirely by Mission Rock revenues. So we recommend approval of item six and seven. Thank you. I, and I just wanted to, uh, based on that, you know, seeing that there's about $48 million still waiting and for the wait, waiting for the phase two to begin so that we can actually uh, cover those funds. Um, but also, I think during your presentation, you know, there's the mention about you know, the true interest rates at five point, I think according to your presentation, it's like 5.86%. But it also in your presentation or verbal presentation that you mentioned, sounds like you do anticipate that that percentage may change and maybe lower it sounds to me that's what you're what you're indicating could you just walk us through a little bit of that sure i think we're, we're, we're uh, we hope that interest rates will be lower i, th so I do think I. so do i <laughs> realistically we're, we're seeing an increasing trends since then so it might be lower i think that is a big challenge is those interest rates can wildly change the amount of proceeds available to the project and one of the contributors to that that funding gap that nick mentioned um so we're monitoring it, and I have Bridget available to talk about more of the technical aspects. Yeah. Please. Hi, Supervisors. Bridget Katz, Deputy Director for the Office of Public Finance. So the 5.86% um, true interest cost was part of the good faith estimates based on the market as of early September. And we estimate that based off of um, current rates, that rates are approximately 75 basis points higher than when we ran those numbers in um, September, but we do allow for um, flexibility in the not to exceed amount in the event that rates, you know, kind of do go down in the opposite direction. But, but yeah, we have seen rates come up since those estimates were run. Thank you, and uh, with that, uh, I don't see uh, any more questions, uh, no name on the roster, therefore, let's go to public comment. Yes, Madam Chair, members of the public who wish to speak on items six and seven, uh, please line up now. Um, Mr. Phil. Yes, thank you. It's money, 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 but money doesn't matter. It's the accomplishment that matters. It's the, 
it feels like there is a rush to, it's another project, $48 million, okay, fine. And there is a rush December. When do you understand that you must first fix the problem that, uh, of San Francisco here? When do you first understand that you need to fix the problem of homelessness here? Who, who is going to want to live in San Francisco here if you don't fix that first? Oh, this is very tiring. Thank you much for your comments. And seeing no more speakers, Madam Chair. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. I would like to move uh, these two items to full board with recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion, uh, for items six and seven to be forwarded to the full board with a positive recommendation. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. And with that, Mr. Clerk, please call item eight through 11 together. <coughs> Pardon. Uh, yes, items eight through 11. Uh, item numbers eight and 10 are resolutions determining, uh, determining and declaring that the public interest and necessity demand the following, and that related costs are necessary or convenient for the foregoing purposes to be financed through bonded indebtedness in an amount not to exceed 300 million, authorizing landlords to pass through 50% of the resulting property tax increase to residential tenants under the administrative code providing for the levy and collection of taxes to pay both principal and interest on such bonds, affirming the determination under the California Environmental Quality Act and finding that the proposed bonds are consistent with the general plan and the eight priority policies of the planning code. Items 9 and 11 are, are its associated ordinances calling and providing for a special election to be held in the city and county on Tuesday, March 5th, 2024, for the purpose of submitting to the voters these propositions to incur bonded indebtedness. Item number eight uh, determines and declares that the public interest and necessity demand the construction, reconstruction, development, acquisition, improvement, rehabilitation, preservation, and repair of rental affordable housing projects and the expansion of home ownership opportunities through the down payment assistance loan program. Uh, item number 10 determines and declares that the public interest and necessity demand the construction, development, acquisition, and or rehabilitation of rental affordable housing projects and the not to exceed amount of $300 million to be financed is subject uh, to independent citizen oversight and regular audits. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, we will start with President Peskin, who is the sponsor of two of these four items. Thank you, Chair Chan and Supervisor Safai. Uh, by way of background and no news to you, uh, San Francisco has a mandate, a state mandate, to build 46,000 new affordable housing units over the next eight years, uh, but that has not been accompanied by any state, uh, or for that matter, federal largesse. Uh, and the source, the ongoing source of funds for the development of affordable housing have been local funds. Uh, as you all know, uh, the consistent source of funds over time have been funds that have come both from general obligation bond issues approved by the voters, as well as funds from our inclusionary housing laws in the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, the Board of Supervisors uh, after long uh, conversations and deliberations, ultimately passed a uh, reduction, a temporary reduction in the amount of inclusionary rates and fees. 
Uh, and as part of that discussion, uh, the mayor and the capital planning committee and this board of supervisors rejiggered our capital planning committee bond schedule to bring forward an affordable housing bond that was originally scheduled for November of 2024 to the March 2024 ballot that is before us today. Uh, there are two versions of that before us. Uh, they are very, very similar. Um, and in discussions with the mayor's office as we were uh, evolving both uh, very similar pieces of legislation, which both, by the way, do not uh, increase any property taxes by virtue of their passage or issue. Um, the uh, latter two that are set forth as items 10 and 11, uh, I believe the mayor's office and my office are in agreement on. Um, and so uh, I would like to propose some amendments to uh, items 10 and 11, the resolution and ordinance that are before you today um, and uh, speak to uh, what that $300 million bond does. We will hear more from uh, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and more from the budget and legislative analysts uh, but top lines is that this is a $300 million general obligation bond uh, for the development of new affordable housing uh, and construction of new affordable housing in San Francisco, uh, as well as for the preservation and rehabilitation of existing housing, um, and includes uh, funding for extremely low to moderate income households, which will address workforce housing needs uh, and expand housing opportunities uh, for middle-class households as set forth in the ordinance. Um, the amendments that I am proposing today are the result of conversations and input that we have received uh, from the tenants community as it relates to uh, the pass-throughs, and one would assume that if property taxes are not increasing, that pass-throughs would not increase. Uh, and so there are some amendments here that reflect that, and you will see that the words, if any, uh, are uh, accompanied. It says tax increase, if any. Um, but this will also be accompanied by trailing legislation to Chapter 37 of the Administrative Code that actually deals with the pass-through formulas uh, to correct a historic deficiency. And thank you to Mitchell Omerberg and Polly Marshall uh, and Controller Ben Rosenfield for bringing that to our attention and figuring out how to solve it. Uh, the balance of the changes that you will see in the uh, resolution at pages four, five, six, and seven are recitals that address the high importance of job quality and training opportunities uh, and skilled labor uh, that address uh, the city's uh, commitment to the climate action plan as set forth in the environment code uh, and also state the importance of building housing for our senior population as well as for um, our women's population. Uh, and those findings are set forth 
uh, in items 10 and 11. Uh, that is a high-level view of the item that is before us and is part of our ongoing effort to uh, provide what the state and federal government is not providing, which is a source of funds to meet our 46,000 unit mandate. Uh, and with that, Madam Chair, I will hand it back over to you, but Eric Shaw, the head of the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development is here, and I wanna uh, thank the board for their unanimous adoption of the revised capital plan and thank and acknowledge the mayor and her staff uh, for working collaboratively to bring this forward. Thank you, President Peskin. Before I call on Director Eric Shaw from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, I just want to first recognize the um, hard work that put into the amendments that are before us today and that um, the ability to make sure that we recognize our seniors, uh, but also particularly women and who are homeless uh, and including those experience violence on the streets um, in need of shelter and housing. And I think that is um, uh, really what the public dollars should go to to support our most vulnerable on our streets that in need uh, of housing at, and shelter at this moment. And uh, because we know that the market rate uh, can continue to build uh, for market rate housing, but for those that really in needs of housing uh, will rely on public dollars and uh, city's leadership to provide them those housing. So with that, um, I will be adding myself as a co-sponsor to this and uh, And Madam uh, Chair, while we are acknowledging folks, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge my Chief of Staff, Sonny Angulo, who has labored uh, long and hard on this and the amendments that are before us. And also just want to point out what is set forth in the Budget and Legislative Analyst Report that we will hear from later, but that this uh, would uh, help build 1,500 units of affordable housing in San Francisco, uh, new rental preservation um, victim and survivor rental for the women's community for a total of about 1,500 units of additional affordable housing. Thank you. I just want to clarify for Mr. Clerk that I'm only indicating co-sponsorship for items 10 and 11. Thank, thank you. you much, and with Madam that, Chair. Uh, Director Shaw, the floor is yours. Um, thank you very much, members of the committee. Um, my name is Eric Shaw. I'm the director of the San Francisco Mayor's Office for Housing and Community Development. And once again, if we're doing acknowledgments, I want to thank um, my team, Sheila McCopolis on Government Affairs, Brian Strong um, from the Capital Planning Committee, and a lot of our staff, Lydia Ely, um, and their hard work providing the analysis to, to get us to this um, crucial point. <clears throat> um, my presentation today is actually um, mirroring what was shared with the, the Capital Planning Committee, I believe, in August and then previously in September, I mean, in, in July. And so we'd just love to make sure that we have the appropriate context for here and thank you for, um, for your support and continue to make the needed investments in affordable housing. Next slide. <clears throat> Since 2015, San Franciscans have supported more than $1.2 billion in bond investments for affordable housing. This has produced and protected more than 4,000 units of affordable housing. The $300 million bond proposal for you today will produce approximately more than 1,500 units of new affordable housing, preserve 60, and provide 120 beds for survivors of domestic and street violence and human trafficking as amended proposed by President Peskin. Few products will, few products will utilize multiple bond sources. This product's utilizing both 2015 and 2019 bond funding are Petrero and Sunnydale Hope SF, 
4840 Mission, and Balboa Park Upper Yard. Hope SF projects utilizing 2019 bonds today may also utilize 2024 bond proceeds, and the 2022 COP-funded projects will not utilize 2019 or 2024 bond proceeds. Next. So in 2015, we issued our, our first GO housing bond in this moment, and you can see that most of the projects funded were concentrated in the eastern and southern parts of San Francisco. Although home ownership programs, which we invested in providing 87 loans, um, were eventually scattered across the city. Um, we've seen an evolution in this um, and um, advancing geographic diversity within the work of our other bonds that have come through. In 2019, the $600 million bond funded more than 3,100 units, and all funds are dedicated to pipeline projects. The third issuance of the bond dollars is expected next year. Like the prior bond, bond dollars supported production and preservation at a range of income levels, with funding specifically allocated to seniors and to educators. In the snapshot of the 2015 bond, um, $310 million, this is, this is this bond, funded more than 1,500 units, and these funds will be fully expended next year. As you can see, bond dollars supported production and preservation also at a range of income levels. The 2019 bond funds are more geographically distributed throughout San Francisco, supporting the housing element goals to provide affordable housing opportunities in a diversity of neighborhoods. And so the lessons learned from our 2015 and 2019 bonds um, are informing the proposed 2024 bond. So project schedules are less certain today than they used to be, and it's important that bond funding remain flexible and nimble so that we can be responsive to the opportunities as they arise. As construction operating costs increase, our local dollars um, are supporting fewer projects. Rising interest rates and costs, um, cost risk are requiring some flexibility to adjust accordingly for project funding. Um, but also, SB 35 and its subsequent legislation has significantly simplified the entitlement process, removing what used to be a significant barrier to production of new affordable housing. And so now, outside of the entitlement process, financing is now the most significant challenge. And middle-income housing, which is for households earning more than 80% AMI, struggled, struggled to leverage state funds because they do not meet state policy goals, while that may be goals for the city. In 2024, we've also made sure to incorporate and recognize racial and equity goals. And so before you, um, we have um, suggested that um, we provide housing opportunities in high resource areas, that we will continue to stabilize communities within priority geographies, that we continue to have um, and preserve, produce and preserve a range of unit sizes and locations to meet the diverse housing needs of our population. And then as mentioned by President Peskin and, and by my, by my um, fellow colleagues in the planning office that we want to have um, complete alignment with um, our housing element goals, especially in the area of production. And so, as we've shared before, um, the GEO bonds are the most reliable funding source for affordable housing within San Francisco. So in that instance, most other local funding sources are generated by private development and therefore fluctuate with the market. As we said before, federal and state funding is less predictable. Um, but still, but while less predictable, is still providing a bulk of the funding, um, leveraging city funds at a rate of one to two. Um, funding falls short is what is what is needed billions by 
excuse me, funding is falling short of what's needed by billions annually. I think we've understood in the housing element the need for $19 billion to address our funds, but we continue to work to leverage both state and federal funds um, and incorporating other resources that can be leveraged with geobond funding. And then also right now, how de high development costs, particularly hard costs, are undermining some of our housing goals. So local funding is a crucial source of dollars for affordable housing. As you can see, bond funding is more than a third of our local budget for affordable housing. Inclusionary fees had been the second largest source of funding, but since the pandemic, those fees are shrinking. And we want to note that over the past five years, we've invested almost $1 billion in affordable housing, and we need to maintain those numbers. I'm proud to say our numbers last year, I believe, were $550 million in deals that we invested in. But also our local dollars are one piece of the funding picture. As we said, every local housing dollar leverages almost two state and or federal housing dollars. So from 2018 to 2022, San Francisco spent a billion dollars on affordable housing and leveraged two billion dollars in other fund funding. And the local dollars allow us to pursue and win other state funding. Um, the local funding trends are challenging. So local funding is volatile, volatile, as we know, and we're working really hard to um, support and educate um, our communities and our sponsors around, um, around the nature of this money, how we're delivering on this, and how we are working with you all to make sure that one-time allocations um, are meeting those needs. Um, we, as we noted before, we've seen a precipitous drop in inclusionary fees. Um, and then once we have right now is the funding we have available is now programmed to deliver pipeline projects. So I think we have, with the addition of um, the NOFA, about 11,000, I think more than 11,000 units in housing. And we had a spike in local funding, local spending last year when we received infusion of state funding for products that had stalled. But once again, those products had received pre-development funding and other funding from the local government to get them ready, as we sort of said, um, construction ready, build ready um, for receiving the state financing from the State Accelerator Fund. So we want to acknowledge that the 2024 bond proposal will include funding three categories. We know the initial record. So $240 million for the production of low-income housing, $30 million for preservation, and as acknowledged, I know the, the initial file said um, for down payment assistance loan, but we also understand, as amended by President Peskin, um, $30 million for housing victims and survivors of domestic abuse. The $240 million for new construction will support development projects in the pipeline that have received city funds for pre-development or newly acquired parcels. To meet all pipeline and programmatic goals in the coming six years, we will need $900 million. And so this local bond is an important step. New construction will focus on delivering products that are in pre-development or, pre or for newly acquired sites. Projects total Products totally more than 1,400 units will be geographic, 1,500, excuse me, would be geographically distributed around the city, and units will be available to households earning between 15 and 80% AMI. These products may include public housing, low-income, preservation, and senior housing, and most products will include a 20% set aside for homeless households. $30 million in preservation funding will support the acquisition of 60 units at risk of losing their affordability and stabilizing vulnerable tenants. Units will be acquired with the goal of geographic diversity, and funding will go towards acquisition of buildings with six or more units. 
These products support a range of household incomes from 30% to 120% AMI. And these products protect households across the widest range of incomes. It will also invest in critical repairs to our existing housing stock. And then as, as shared by President Peskin in the amended legislation, 30 million will be used for developed housing for victims and survivors of domestic violence, street violence, abuse, or human trafficking. And this will likely be transitional housing coupled with programmatic subsidies. Um, we're trying to understand the um, impact of, of these products being financed through tax credits because of fair housing and lease requirements, but we will be coordinating with both the city attorney, internally with staff, and with HSH on this. And we understand that the placements would occur, um, likely occur through coordinated entry, but also once again, we're preliminarily dealing, working with HSH um, on understanding how that would work. So once again, um, for the spending timeline, we believe that with a $250 million in new construction, that we can close $120 million in those loans um, in the year 24-25, and then an additional $120 million in loans um, in fiscal year 25-26. Um, some of these funds you know, are providing gap financing, so will be contingent upon the availability of state funds, but we've been working very hard um, because of our um, racial equity and geographic, geographic diversity initiatives within our procurements um, to get state funding. We believe that we can expend um, the $30 million in preservation funds um, within by 25-26, and then for survivor housing, as we work out the policies and this program would be new, then we anticipate that we can fully expend those funds by Q1 of 27 and 28. And so we also acknowledge at the same time we're um, working closely um, with BAFA to understand that there's another important bond measure that's coming in 2024. And this possible regional bond measure may be on the 2024 ballot and provide up to $10 billion for regional assistance for affordable housing, but we think estimated $1.2 billion for San Francisco. And we do want to note that if both are passed by voters, um, that we are going to be using both those resources to make sure that we're accelerating the pipeline, development of pipeline within our housing and meeting our housing goals. And so with that, I want to thank you all once again for your leadership. I'm excited about the opportunity for us to bring to the voters additional resources to meet our housing goals. Um, and with that, um, I once again, I'm joined by Sheila Nicopolis, um, MLCD's Head of Government Affairs, and then by Brian Strong, who's the Head of Capital Planning Committee. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. Items 8 and through 11 are two sets of legislation that would essentially provide for a $300 million general obligation bond uh, to be put on the March 2024 ballot uh, for voter approval. There, um, we detailed the different proposals on page 29 of our report, which shows um, the differences. Uh, there are four programs that would be funded, new rental housing, preservation of existing rental housing, um, down payment assistance, and then victims and survivor housing. And you can see that the difference between the two proposals is that um, in the mayor's proposal, there's a $12 million allocation for down payment assistance. And then in President Peskin's proposal, that is removed. And then uh, the allocation for new rent affordable rental housing is reduced to then create a, a bucket of $30 million for affordable rental housing for victims and survivors of violence broadly defined. Um, and then you can see later on that page the number of units that these allocated 
that this funding would uh, produce uh, across the different programs. You can see that there's a range for the victim and survivor bucket uh, because it, it really depends on the amount of um, other sources that can be applied to those development costs and because if you're limiting it to that specific population, you may not have the full menu of, of affordable housing financing sources to apply to those projects. So we provide a range based on other recent um, acquisitions that the city's made over the past several years. Uh, we also know the fiscal impact of these bonds. This, this is a $300 million bond in either case. Uh, they're expected to carry a 6.5% interest rate, resulting in $244 million of interest costs over the life of the bonds. And I also want to note that the, in the 2019 affordable housing bond was, six, was for $600 million, $425 million has been issued. There's still $165 million of that issuance that has not been spent. And there's another $175 million that's authorized but unissued, though, according to the department, uh, that will be issued in 2024. Um, because these are competing proposals and only one of them was approved by the Capital Planning Committee, we do consider approval to be a policy matter for the board. Thank you. I just uh, wanted to call on uh, Director Shaw to just respond to the uh, 165 million and separately 175 million that is waiting to be issued. Could you just speak a little bit on those two sets of buckets of dollars? Um, so I would have to refer to the controller's office on that. I know that right now that we have been, I know that for the 2019 bond, there were some allocations for certain populations. I think educator was one of them that we were able now, um, and with the, with the COP and the notice of funding availability, now we actually have projects for that population now, so those are gonna be incorporated in there. But I believe, and this is, I'm not speaking for the controller, that um, we want to time the issuing of debt when we have projects ready to receive that funding so there's not the carrying cost of that. And so as you said right now, um, in particular with um, the State Housing Accelerator Fund, um, which was able to um, unlock a couple of our projects, um, we're able now to have um, projects ready to receive that gap financing this year. And so in that instance, um, I think we showed this before, um, state bond financing or state financing became competitive about two or three years ago, which meant that we had a series of our projects that because of either cost or other issues, um, were not receiving funding from the state. So the accelerator fund allowed that to happen. I, I think I do understand, you know, uh, you know, of course you're going to wait until you have projects right. to issue the, you know, bond to cover the cost. I, I, I guess the question that I should, I should have done, I should have been more specific. So do we now, you know, have like a list of projects? Yes. With all these two buckets of, um, yes, like we do. 165 and then 175 separately. That's correct. So right now we have 150, we have 1,577 units um, that are currently within the pipeline. And then we have, we just issued I believe 15 pre-development loans um, for the NOFA projects that we had through the COP and then for other projects. And so what you're saying that um, those dollars uh, all together almost uh, uh, well over 300 million are all like spoken for and yes. allocated? Yes, through previous procurements. Okay, thank you. Um, Supervisor Safayi. Thank you. W where are the lists of those projects? 
Um, I think we, we, we're now providing a, a regular report to you all as, as requested. Um, no, but it's budget. not included in this report. Um, I can have those sent to you, sir. Yeah, we, we had asked for that yesterday okay. um, to your team, and then we got back this report, but it didn't have anything with any specificity. I mean, I guess the, re the reason I bring it up, Director, and I appreciate your team and all their hard work, so I, I want to say that I'm, I'm happy about that. I understand that we have these newer, stricter guidelines about high-resourced areas, and I think that's what's going to get the vast majority of the support in this bond. But I think in past bonds that I have worked on, there's always the ability to have some flexibility in, in case additional projects come up. Right. And I know we have a few uh, in my district, uh, in the Outer Mission, Excelsior, Omai, and we're just outside the high-resourced areas, mm -hmm. and, but we're not necessarily meeting the kind of the eastern neighborhoods definition. So we fall into that no-man's land. And I feel like it's unfortunate because we're going to miss out on opportunities to do affordable housing there. Uh, I understand this is only $300 million. I know we've had more in the past. Right. And so it's, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that we have the opportunity to leverage these dollars. Hopefully interest rates will come down um, and we'll utilize all the different tools in our toolkit. Um, but it does feel like you know, certain neighborhoods in the city are being left out. And if there are opportunities and opportunities do arise that, right. we, that we can't anticipate, we don't necessarily have the flexibility in, in this bond to do that. Right. And so I, I think um, for that question, Supervisor, we, we are going to be using these resources to accelerate construction of our existing pipeline. And so I know that um, we continue, and we've, we've heard your, your concerns around this, um, to work with the state to understand um, sort of the right sizing or, you know, what's the appropriate policy investment for either priority equity areas or high resource areas. But those, those conversations are ongoing at the state level um, and any new products that are procured will be added to the queue towards sort of the end of the queue. So in this instance right now, many of these products may have been procured, um, you know, up to two or three years ago. Um, and so we have received pre-development financing, um, these resources would be, able, be available to provide the gap financing if the state financing is available, but this is going to help um, accelerate the gap financing needed for existing procured projects that will have had, had, had um, pre-development money um, invested already. Mm -hmm. what, what is, uh, and, and then I, I, I think I caught, how much is left over from the previous bond? Um, left over in terms of not been issued? Yeah, yeah that's okay. not been spent. Sorry, I'm going to turn the controls off. Good morning, committee members. Uh, Vishal Dredi from the Office of Public Finance. Just to clarify, I believe the, the amount cited were 165 unspent that, uh, from the bonds that were issued to date. Uh, there was a, an issuance earlier this year, Series 2023 C bonds <laughs> that were issued in spring. And in approximately $170 million. So I believe the, the bulk of that would be from, from the unspent proceeds from the recently issued bonds. And, and then from the $600 million authorization, approximately $175 million remains to be unissued. And it sounds like the plan is to issue them next year. And what's the plan for those? What projects have been identified for the two separate buckets, 165 and 175? Is that right? Right. So for, for the 2023 bonds that were recently issued, there was a spending plan that was detailed to us before we issued that we review. And uh, I, can, I can send the, a list of those projects from the, the bonds that were issued. 
And uh, I do not yet have the list for the 2024 projects that would, I presumably the mayor's office of housing has that. And we can follow up with you on that supervisor. So that's, that has not been determined yet. Yeah, so that, so. The 165? So, so there will not, it will not be for new projects. Right now, I, the way this works is we've had, we've had a procurement for these projects. Some of them, almost, not all of them have received pre-development financing. And then we provide those resources for the gap financing when they have received their state and federal resources. So we don't advance that money until we understand what the gap is going to be. So there's, there won't be $165 million for new projects. It will be providing the gap financing for products that received pre-development funding through past procurements and now have received either state or federal money um, to, to, complete, uh, to, to develop their projects. And do you have that list? We can get that for you, sir. Okay. So you'll get us a list of the 165, and then you're also going to get us a list of what is in the pipeline for the 300 million. That's correct, sir. And can I ask you a question? Because this came up yesterday in our uh, question time with the mayor. There's a project in Hayes Valley mm -hmm. that's been sitting for many years. The mayor said she hadn't been briefed. She didn't know anything about it. Even though she was the supervisor for that district for seven years, it, it made no sense. But I thought since we had you here today, we would, I would ask, is that one of the projects that's in the pipeline, that's being considered, that's going to be put out for RFP, just so we can clarify the record? So the projects within our pipeline are projects that have had an RFP issued and pre-development financing issue. That's not even, for, the, for that one in Hayes Valley, they haven't had so an the, RFP. So the, R, so, the, so the request for qualification has not been issued for Parcel K. Is there a plan to do that? Um, I... I know that we are coordinating with OEWD to understand the timing of the lease for proxy, and, we're, and we understand the instance right now that there's been a call for some additional community planning in that space. And so in that instance, I think we are continuing to coordinate internally as a city um, to understand um, the timing for an RFQ based off of additional community engagement and the status of the proxy lease. Proxy is the lease for the site. That yes. they're the, yes. the master lease. Okay. All right. It would be good. Please get us the list of the 165 that's unspent, that's gap financing, and then the projects that you have identified um, for, the, for this upcoming bond. And, again, thank you for your team's hard work. We're excited about this. Uh, it's much needed in these difficult you know, housing economic times. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I see no name on the roster, let's go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair, members of the public. Who wish to speak on these four items? I should line up now, right along those uh, curtains to your right my left. Uh, Mr. Bell, if you could start. Circumvolution, you go around the thing, so you, you, it shows you are not very good with numbers, flinging numbers there, number here, number there. For a very reason, I know that. Uh, you, can you define what affordable means first, compared to unaffordable? So you have to define what affordable means. It's precise here. You are specific, because you, uh, otherwise it's an absolute joke here. So fling numbers. Go ahead. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I know you don't care, but you should, because it's gonna come at you. All right. So define affordable. 
because it has to be compared with what's unaffordable. So unaffordable. So it, there is unaffordable housing in San Francisco. That's what it means. Or who defines what is what. So define numbers, numbers. Since you are supposed to be good at numbers, right? We are in the budget and financing committee, it seems. Thank you, Terry Phil. Next speaker, please. Good morning, supervisors, chair. Uh, I just want to say on behalf of Mercy Housing California how much we appreciate the hard work um, from Supervisor Peskin and the rest of the supervisors to advance this forward. Um, appreciate Supervisor Chan's co-sponsorship of this. It's, it's phenomenal. I suspect we'll have a deeply bipartisan, if that's the right word, um, uh, effort here. And I want to thank the mayor's office and Eric and his team for the fine work on this. Uh, I think, you know, obviously we're, 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 we're in a challenging moment, but this $300 million is going to be exceptionally important in the next couple of years, and I look forward to working with all of you to make it happen. Thank you. Thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Good, good afternoon, supervisors. Uh, thank you for your time today. I'm Juan Diego Castro, National Partnerships Director for Meta Mission Economic Development Agency. Today's affordable housing bond proposal would take a critical step in moving communities like the mission towards greater stability, health, and opportunity for its families by allocating new funds for the production and preservation of affordable housing. I'll take a moment to cite a few key statistics uh, that we believe are important for Meta's uh, strong support of this bond measure. In a recent Meta Health and Equity Through Housing study funded by HCD, 42% of San Francisco's Latino respondents <clears throat> reported that they were living three or more persons in a room. Um, this created direct health effects and consequences during the pandemic in the Mission District and other essential worker communities across the city, um, the workers that we relied upon so heavily during the crisis and still do to run our city. Um, we are already nearly one year into our new housing element, which calls for more than 46,000 units of affordable housing to be built over what's now just another seven more years. Affordable housing units are lined up and ready to be built with MOH, Mayor's Office of Housing reporting that they are nearly a, there are nearly a billion dollars of affordable units in the pipeline waiting to move forward. And lastly, since the inception of the Small Sites Program in 2013, over, over 720 units have been preserved in, in the existing housing stock of San Francisco. Uh, the bonds will further help sustain the preservation program that has been providing stability to keep longtime city residents staying in place. Moving forward, this local bond, along with the regional and state housing bonds, would make a significant progress towards these larger goals we have set with the state for meeting the needs for our workforce, seniors, and more, most vulnerable residents. Thank you. Thank you much, Juan Diego Castro. Next speaker, please. Hi, I'm Elena Engel. I'm with 350 San Francisco and the San Francisco Climate Emergency Coalition. Over the last five days, 80 letters, including from the Sierra Club with their 6,000 members, have been sent to the bond to the bond sponsors, Mayor Breed and Board President Peskin, requesting that they make an amendment to the $30 million preservation portion of the bond, requiring that these existing units or buildings funded under this provision be made all electric. This would be a very small start to removing methane gas from our existing buildings. Just a review. The San Francisco Coalition, Emergency Coalition, and our allies have been advocating for a bond measure to fund the city's climate action plan. 
after a hearing last winter on the CLE report, the supervisors unanimously recommended to capital planning that they include a bond measure in the schedule. In the spring, the supervisors on the Budget and Appropriations Committee proclaimed that all bonds should be climate bonds. Last summer, additional money, $150 million, looks like it's $100 million now, was added to the affordable housing bond, and we advocated that a portion of that new money be dedicated to electrifying existing low-income housing. To date, there is no climate bond proposed for the ballot in the next 10 years on the, ballot on the bond schedule. There is no portion of this bond that requires the electrification of existing buildings. This past summer has been the hottest in recorded history. How much time do you think we have? Thank you much, Elena Angle, for your comments. Next speaker, please. And Madam Chair, if I may, uh, as I referenced earlier, the amendments uh, that I am offering today speak to the city's climate action plan and adherence thereto. Thank you, and let's continue with the public comment. Good morning, Supervisors. John Avalos from the Council of Community Housing Organizations. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the Board of Supervisors, in particular uh, President Peskin, for your many months of work working through the Technical Advisory Committee that has recommended lowering the inclusionary housing fee and also recommending a superior amount of funding that could be moved forward to replace the loss of our affordable housing funds through inclusionary. Uh, very grateful for that work. Uh, San Francisco's in the doldrums economically. Uh, we're still trying to come out of the recovery and government investment is key to help with that recovery. So affordable housing as economic recovery should be a major theme of what we're trying to do here. Uh, we're also investing in our workforce uh, and housing our workers is uh, the best way to ensure that we have workers to fill the jobs that need to make our economy work and to make sure that our public services are working as well. So uh, it's very thoughtful that we include that. Uh, senior housing is critical as we're seeing uh, funds for seniors uh, dry up. Uh, and I'm very grateful uh, to be allied with uh, w the Women's, uh, Women's Housing Coalition uh, to propose uh, housing for uh, survivors of domestic violence and women who are trying to emerge at, for self-independence from uh, domestic violence situations. Uh, Supervisor Peskin mentioned that there's a lack of largesse from the state and federal government. Uh, that means we have to do more here. I think it's important that we consider as well how uh, we can lift our own self-imposed debt ceiling to have larger bonds that can address our infrastructure needs. Uh, in the future, it would be good to look at how we can prime the pump for larger bonds. We have a bond coming up potentially for uh, the region, uh, $10 billion, that would bring uh, $1.2 billion to San Francisco. This work for this bond is in preparation for that. We have to show that government can work to get it right so the voters approve the work that you do. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you much, John Avalos, for your comments. Thank you, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that is uh, our former supervisor, John yes. Avalos. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Rebecca Jackson with the Center on Juvenile Criminal Justice, where we serve justice, homeless-involved women with children, and co-chair 
of the San Francisco Women's Housing Coalition with a broader effort to advocate for the need of women in the city who make up 30% of our documented unhoused folks. It's DV Awareness Month. Some of us were out on the steps last night as we rallied to bring attention to this matter. It's a historic moment for women as the language in this bond makes it clear that San Francisco is putting unhoused women and survivors in a place where we can be seen by including 30 million in this bond. There's a 2019 uh, community needs assessment for survivors of violence that showed nearly 2,700 women identified survivors were turned away from services, safety, and housing. For every one woman that we served, three were turned away. I am a survivor that was turned away, who had two small daughters at the time, seven and eight years old, with no options where we could go and be safe. After spending two nights in the park, choosing safety for my children meant that I choose to be separated from them, which to this day has caused trauma and harm and negative impacts that we could still feel. It's my daughter's 29th birthday today. And when I asked her if she thought about having children, her answer was no. Listen to us when we tell you that women need sanctuary and that San Francisco has the means to provide safety and hope by deciding how to allocate this bond. By stepping up and committing to funding for this needed infrastructure for women, this bond will give women hope and opportunity for them to be safe and transition to housing and keep their families together. A colleague of mine said, if you want to see how a city values its people, look at its investments. This proposed $30 million allocation for victim and survival services is an important step to finally recognize this vital population. Thank you so much for your comments, Rebecca Jackson. We're ready. Again, apologies if I have to cut anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at two minutes. Thank you much. Good morning. My name is Romy Nottage, and I have spent the last two decades in working in the homelessness sector, from workforce development to permanent housing. Housing is the solution, but the type of housing needs to be adequate for all populations and their unique vulnerabilities. Data has shown women exiting homelessness who have gone through transitional housing rather than straight to PSH are less likely to be homeless again. Right now, women's services are lacking. Only 5% of our tra transitional respite and shelter beds are for women, despite 34% of the population experiencing homelessness in San Francisco identify as women. The inclusion of victim-based transitional housing language in this bond offers a broader base for us to support them. We need this bond to have language and a commitment responding to the needs of women. Women need a safe place to transition back into housing. And the Women's Center can both offer this hope and serve as a model for the United States. We have an historic opportunity to be, to be in a national spotlight right now for a really good reason, given, giving women hope and safety. Structurally, we have not created enough room for women in almost in every sector of our society. This allows us to continue to change that. Thank you. Thank you much, Rami Nottage, for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Good morning, thank you in advance for the opportunity to speak. My name is Erica Drate, and I'm the Vice President of Programs for Community Forward. I oversee the shelter, transitional housing, drop-in, in addition to, um, yeah, drop-in, transitional housing, and, and housing, yes. 
So working at the women's shelter every day, um, I've seen firsthand women coming through our doors experiencing severe and persistent mental illness. And when I say severe and persistent mental illness, I mean like psychosis, depression, um, nonverbal due to severe trauma. Most of the women look like me. In fact, 80% of the unhoused women, they self-report severe trauma and abuse as a cause of their homelessness. And again, they're women of color like myself. Even when services do exist, they're hidden away at a drop-in center. We serve 3,000 women each year, but we're under a freeway and extremely dangerous to get to. One of the things that I like to share is that we had a guest that was running from a DV situation. And the only way that she can feel safe was be, I was the only person and, and another staff member ensuring that she was safe to get into the door. This is the type of safety that we need to provide for these women who are DV. When we worked together during the pandemic, Community Forward, we answered the call and opened a sheltering place for Hotel for Women. 50% of those women were served and moved into permanent housing. What was important about that was that they had a chance to stabilize, had a chance to heal, and the women who had been resistant to placement in co-ed housing accepted the SIP hotels because they trusted us and they had a sense of community and lived in community. Co-ed shelter is not working for, for our women, and especially women who are experiencing human trafficking and DV. The Women's Center is the answer and can be, can be a safe place and only if the city allocates Thank funds to much, women. Thank you much, Erica. Erica Drade for your comments. Thank you much. Next speaker, please. Good morning. My name is Chelsea Leonard, and I'm the Chief Development Officer for San Francisco Safe House. Um, I've only been in this position in this sector for a little over two months now, so long-time listener, first-time caller, but I'm continuously shocked um, by the lack of services that are specific to women and survivors in our community, especially in a city like San Francisco. This bond is an investment not just in women, but it's an investment to revitalize and re-engage our community members and offer women hope for a safe and more independent future through services that we currently do not have the capacity to provide. This is an ability to show, this is an opportunity to show our ability to partner and get the work done. We have a diverse set of stakeholders interested in the success of what this bond could fund. From nonprofit members of the Women's Housing Coalition to our community's residents, we have the rare opportunity to activate a diverse population and engage our city's residents towards a similar goal of empowering women experiencing homelessness. No matter where these services locations end up, I believe I speak for all nonprofits in our coalition that we are committed to working in close collaboration with each other and members of our community to ensure women receive the services they not only deserve, but have been asking for for years. Thank you. Thank you much, Chelsea Leonard. Next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Eve Langston Bartow. I represent San Francisco Safe House and the Women's Housing Coalition. I'm here to support the affordable housing bond championed by President Peskin. In the last 10 years, seven gender-specific organizations and programs have either shut down or gone co-ed, and not because there wasn't a demand for their services, but because there wasn't any investment in their services. With over 30% of the homeless population being women and less than 5% of, space, of safe spaces and housing dedicated to them, it's no wonder that we're seeing an increase in women's homelessness in San Francisco. Reason being, co-ed spaces are simply just not safe. This population are survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and sex trafficking, and co-ed spaces are incredibly traumatic and triggering. 
Right now, there's an unprecedented attack on women uh, with trans experience and non-binary on a national level. The city has an opportunity to lead and show this community that they really care. Women are the backbones of families. Families are the backbone of our community. And it's time for the city to have a backbone and show this community that they actually really care. And that starts with this bond. Thank you. Thank you, my, uh, thank you much, Eve Langston-Berthout. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. Thank you, supervisors, for this opportunity to speak about women as well as children. I'm, my name is Rashida Blake. I'm the director at the Drop-In Center. I've been there for now for about three months. And what I've seen uh, with women uh, that are dropping in and sometimes, oftentimes staying uh, longer than the drop-in is elderly women, trans women, uh, specifically women of color and women with sometimes often with children. I'd, I'd like to change, I, 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 what I wanna see with this bond and I'm hoping this bond will create is a change in, in, that, in what we see. Um, we see also see women that are chronically mentally ill and uh, chronically homeless. We uh, are experiencing right now women, especially women that are elderly and don't have family, don't have housing. I'd like to be able to see that change, and I believe this bond can do that. I just want to talk briefly about um, an elderly woman that we have there that um, is experiencing a little bit of dementia. She couldn't remember. She's been there now for about a month and she's in her late 70s. She couldn't remember where she came from. She oftentimes crosses a street that is very dangerous. They're under the underpath. There's traffic, people heading to the highway. So I, it breaks my heart to see an elderly person that has dementia, sometimes, oftentimes can't remember what day it is or where she is. It, it, would, it would be so wonderful and beneficial to see elderly people like her get sustainable and affordable housing. Thank you. Thank you much. Next speaker, please. Good morning, I'm Sammy Rayner. I'm a co-chair of the Women's Housing Coalition as well as the Chief Impact Officer at Community Forward San Francisco. I'll pick up the quote that my colleague Rebecca left off on. Um, which is from one of our mentors, Kimberly Ellis. A city's budget is a reflection of its values. Right now, with less than 5% of our city housing going to women, we don't value women. Yet, <laughs> this is the group, this is the board that is gonna help us change that. If we can put dollars on the budget that show we as a city value women, we can change this narrative and we can transform our city. So I really appreciate the, it was a, a big effort over the last several years to just bring women's issues into the light and I really appreciate the leadership of Aaron Peskin adding this $30 million carve out for women and I hope that we will keep that in, in the bond going forward. Our coalition, as you've heard a lot of us today, you've heard us many times, we are organized, we show up, and we have a strategy. We have a pipeline that we've been developing over years that will make real change for women. So we hope you will vote yes on this bond and know that we are gonna be behind this, working hard, getting the message out to the public to help our city see and value women um, and not give up on our sisters, our mothers, and our grandmothers. Thank you. 
Thank you much, Sammy Rayner. Next speaker, please. Uh, hi, my name is Aurora Dopp. I'm here on behalf of Sword to Plowshares Veterans Rights Organization to show our support for the proposed affordable housing bond measure. San Franciscans are living with great housing insecurity, with many of us feeling the impact of high rents, displacement pressures, and outright homelessness. The city needs to step up and invest more heavily in deeply affordable housing for low and extremely low income residents, particularly those on fixed incomes. Veterans, along with California's overall population, are rapidly aging. Vietnam veterans average 68 years old, and we know that individuals over 50 are disproportionately at risk for homelessness in California due to the lack of affordable housing. Swords to Plowshares operates 500 units of permanent supportive housing in San Francisco, most developed in partnership with community-based affordable housing developers like CCDC. Over the last three years, together we opened two new affordable housing sites in San Francisco, the Edwin M. Lee Apartments in Mission Bay for veterans and families, and the Maseo May Apartments on Treasure Island for veterans with disabilities. We know from our experience as a housing provider that some veterans continue to live in our PSH units simply because they cannot afford to move out. Veterans who are low income but do not need intensive on-site services deserve more independent and still affordable housing options. The proposed bond bill can remedy this, free up PSH units, and expand the array of affordable housing across the city to address our affordability crisis. Building housing is critical, and so are stabilizing services to keep individuals housed and capital funding for repairs and renovations. I'll conclude by saying that veterans are seniors, women, retirees, and trade workers, and they all deserve affordable housing choice. Thank you. Thank you much. Next speaker, please. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Julian Ball, and I'm re here representing Bill Soro Housing Program, Bishop, uh, and we're a, a member organization of the Council of Community Housing Organizations. We at Bishop um, work with clients um, to help them access the affordable housing that, that's out there. So we work with them from the time they come in to find out how the system works, to help them apply all the way through the lease-up process. So we, in our, my role, I see uh, clients who um, are homeless or who are doubled up. We have many families um, with three, four people renting a room in a, in a single family home or apartment from master tenant. Many of those families have one or two full-time income earners and still can't afford housing in San Francisco. And what we do is we help them through the process they have to apply for lotteries every time there's a housing opportunity. And we teach them not to give up hope that they can apply for as many of these opportunities as they can and not give up. And we sometimes work with those clients for years at a time until they finally get selected. But for every success story we have, we have another family who, who gives up hope and stops applying, um, who thinks the system just doesn't work. And so this affordable housing bond is just the, is a first step to changing that. There have been other first steps, other bonds, um, and this is still just a drop in the bucket of what's needed, but, but we have to start somewhere. Um, and so this is one place to start, especially at a time where um, the city is mandated to build 46,000 units of affordable housing by 2031, um, and a time when market rate developers can't make a profit off 
uh, in this economy, we need to invest in our affordable housing. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Julian Ball, for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. I have a process question as I have a statement from Choo Choo, but also another organization is asking um, to make a statement and they provided, they were not able to attend. Can I also take the public comment time after? Uh, I will give you two minutes to provide your public comment. If you have something to submit, I will take it. Also, okay, sounds good. I'll do it by email. Thank you. Uh, Lee Lovett, Council of Community Housing Organizations. Our city can meet this moment to build more affordable housing. As a coalition, Chuchu represents service providers, tenant advocates, and nonprofit housing developers who have grown out of their communities doing decades of work on creating and improving programs for the working class, BIPOC, immigrants, youth, seniors, vulnerable groups, including the unhoused, and as you've heard, women who are survivors of violence and trauma. Our coalition is making a full-throated call for public investments that ultimately will create and preserve homes uh, and strengthen the fabric of these communities. And I want to speak to um, the, the need on the ground for this preservation work, where nonprofits uh, can acquire rental buildings, maintain them, and protect the tenants from the speculative market. It's crucial to sustain our small sites program and keep San Francisco residents in their housing and prevent a whole slew of other problems that actually become much more expensive later. Earlier in the year, our member organizations had submitted projects um, deemed eligible by the city's criteria and by our estimates totaling $124 million in needed funding. And yet it's hard without adequate funding to keep this housing preservation work going, the capacity of these organizations, and to keep residents who face displacement in their homes, especially in those equity geographies. So the $30 million in the proposed housing bond is really crucial to maintain this preservation work. And our challenges are many. So thank you for um, calling that to our attention, Board President uh, Peskin and also Director Eric Shaw. And the good challenge we have in front of us is how do we meet those RENA goals? The 46,598 units of affordable housing. Together we climb up to that, that ladder step by step as, as a group. Thank you. Thank you much, Lee Lovett. Next speaker, please. Hi, good morning, Supervisors. My name is Manson Leung with Self-Help for the Elderly, also a, a member of Choo Choo. I'm here to thank you for your uh, support to bring this bond measure to 2024. On behalf of our community, which is mostly senior in the Asian population, uh, I would like to urge you to understand the need for this bond to go forward because most of our seniors cannot barely afford the housing costs in San Francisco. Most of them have 80% of what their uh, income right now. One of the senior, uh, one of my job is going to the uh, different community to talk about affordable housing. Some of the seniors have approached me and told me that they, they have served the community for the last 30 years by doing basic labor job because of the language limitation. They serve our community, they pay the taxes, but now they're old, they could not able to afford the house they live. One senior actually have approached me and said, Mr. Learn, were I able to afford, uh, get a place I can afford so I can have a comfortable retirement life before she goes? So that is a sad to me to hear this statement. That's the reason why I come before you to urge you to put this bottle on the uh, 
2024 measure to uh, put more inventory in the uh, system to allow them to assess those inventory. Thank you. Thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Hello, thank you supervisors for your time. My name is Mitch Mankin. I'm speaking on behalf of San Francisco Housing Development Corporation. We're a CBO based in the Bayview and Fillmore districts. And we want to express our strong support for the housing bond and our great thanks to Supervisor Peskin for introducing it. Affordable housing is the most urgent crisis facing our city. We see the need in our streets every day. We see it when the percentage of black San Franciscans has declined to below 6%. We hear it from the families that our counselors talk to who desperately need more affordable housing options to avoid being displaced from San Francisco. It's especially important this bond includes preservation funding to the tune of $30 million. Preservation is a tool that allows us to keep San Franciscans in their homes and turn unstable market rate housing into permanent affordability. But as we talk about this bond, we should be clear, the size of this bond isn't sufficient to address the full scale of our housing crisis. As you heard earlier, the, the Mayor's Office of Housing's pipeline is $900 million. This is only $300 million. So I don't want to think anyone to think this uh, bond will solve this crisis by itself. I think it's important to emphasize that as this goes forward to the voters. But this does provide a critical chunk of funding, and it does so without requiring any property tax increases. And as part of a package of measures, including the regional BAFA bond in November, which is also very important to support, it can potentially punch above its weight and allow us to leverage affordable housing funding from other sources to build the affordable housing that San Francisco needs. Affordable housing is economic recovery, and we need to be very clear over the next few months. Even as media attention moves elsewhere, the affordable housing crisis is still at the root of most of our struggles in San Francisco, and this bond is part of the solution. Thank you. Thank you much, Rich Mankin. Next speaker, please. Uh, Madam Chair, and um, uh, Gen Fujioka from Chinatown Community Development Center, um, want to express our full support for the proposal before you. Um, it, uh, and, and thank you also for uh, uh, leadership of uh, President Peskin and, and the Mayor's office. Um, but concretely for, for an organization like CCDC, um, uh, we presently have uh, uh, five projects uh, in that pipeline, two of which uh, do not have uh, the, the funding necessary to proceed uh, without this bond. Uh, uh, roughly 340 units, uh, both uh, of family units and of senior housing. Uh, and, and without this bond, um, the prospects of the, those projects are in jeopardy. Concretely for us, what we see on the, uh, on, on the ground, and I, I, I work principally in the housing counseling program, we majority of our tenants presently um, are waiting to, to find housing. They, they look on the Dahlia program and they basically cannot afford the units that are on, online. A majority of our seniors um, uh, earn incomes under $1,200 a month. I looked at Dahlia this morning, there isn't a single unit to, to, to apply for, to even get into the lottery uh, that was mentioned before. Um, so th there is urgent need for this housing. Uh, and we strongly support um, this measure. Thank you. Thank you much, Jen Fijioka. Next speaker, please. 
Good afternoon, Chair Chan, President Peskin, Supervisor Safai, Charlie Shamas with the Council of Community Housing Organizations. We represent 22 member organizations that are rooted in BIPOC neighborhoods throughout San Francisco, working to prevent displacement, stabilize local communities, and acquire and develop affordable housing. In January of this year, this Board of Supervisors adopted a housing plan that recognized that our path forward is to produce two units of affordable housing for every one unit of market rate housing. That plan calls for the construction of 46,000 units by the end of 2031 affordable. So now is the time to set the table for conversations to augment revenue streams for affordable housing and to create new ones. The item before you today, we should be thinking about as our housing element bond. General obligation bonds have been the most consistent and significant local revenue source for the production and preservation of affordable housing in the city. Together with the regional and state affordable housing bond that is planned for November, it demonstrates that all levels of government can show up to this conversation around housing affordability in 2024. This bond will enable us to get to the hard work of growing the city stock of affordable housing units, to stabilize neighborhoods that have experienced displacement, house the most vulnerable among us, support our elders, empower women that experience housing insecurity, house our workforce, and keep the next generation here in the city. We urge your support to win this bond in March and the regional and state bonds in November so that we can create the affordable housing needed to build an economy that is inclusive for all of us. Thank you. Thank you much, Charlie Shamas. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. I'm Mitchell Omerberg with the Affordable Housing Alliance. Uh, as a renter's advocacy organization, we've long uh, seen our role as fighting, obviously, for renter's rights, but also for affordable housing. The need for affordable housing has never been more acute. Uh, this bond appears to be the most significant, if not the only serious effort on the horizon to address that issue. The emphasis on housing for seniors, women, and workforce housing seems spot on. Um, in addition, the city's capital plan for 18 years has uh, offered bonds, city bonds, at a uh, no property tax increase basis where the bonds are issued, the new bonds are issued as the old ones are retired, so there's no resulting property tax, and we're happy to see that language reflected in the legislation that's before you today. It also makes um, supporting this bond not only the clear choice, but also an easy choice. So thank you for all your work on this housing bond. Thank you much, Mitchell Omerberg. And seeing no further speakers, Madam Chair. Thank you, seeing no more public comments. Public comment is now close. Um, with that, uh, before I make the motion, actually, I should say, um, my assumption is that, um, and Board President Peskin, do you have any concluding remark? Would you like to make a concluding remark? I do not, other than thanking all of the members of the public for their support and for their help along the way, and we still have a long way to go between now and March, including uh, putting this on the ballot, but I think we are off to an auspicious uh, beginning. Thank you, Mr. Shaw, and to the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. I also want to thank and acknowledge the City Attorney's Office and the number of City Attorneys who have helped 
and reiterate my uh, thanks to my Chief of Staff, Sonny Angulo, and to the entire Board of Supervisors, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, rejiggering the bond schedule and bringing this forward. Um, I would like to, and in accordance with my discussions with uh, the Mayor's office, make a motion to amend items 10 and 11, the resolution and ordinance with the language that is before you and um, incorporate those uh, amendments which would sit here for another week and then the uh, Budget and Finance Committee could take action next week to send it to the full board for its first appearance in November. Um, and then I would like to also, in the same motion tables, uh, table items eight and nine. Thank you, and before I move those motions, uh, uh, just wanted to uh, quickly acknowledge Director Shaw, and just uh, especially before making the motion to table A and nine, that uh, we just like to wanna make sure that you can articulate what, if Mayor uh, Bree would like to be added as a co uh, as a sponsor to items ten and eleven. So I'll, I'll I'll coordinate with the with our policy team and government affairs team on that one. So uh, they will be responding to you shortly on that. Yes, and I, I that I believe that's going to happen in the intervening week. And I spoke to the mayor's yes. chief of staff about that this morning. Um, so there's plenty of time for that. Yes. Great. Understood. With that, then uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you, thank everyone that came out today to comment, um, particularly from voices that we have not heard in the past. Really want to appreciate uh, President Peskin and the work to include uh, voices from uh, women in particular that have experienced uh, domestic violence along with other traumas that and prioritizing them and making them, uh, calling them out specifically for this bond. I think it's an important step for the city I really appreciate the work that was done here today. Along with seniors, I want to, want to also thank seniors and ensure that we're prioritizing them because there's never enough, never enough housing for them um, in this city. And thank you to all the advocates that came out on behalf of all the working families. I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. And with that, uh, I'll uh, move the motion as forementioned by President Peskin to amend items 10 and 11, um, and uh, which is uh, summarizing just about five, uh, five uh, amendments that's including those findings that five categories of amendments that are labor findings, climate findings, victims and survivor housing findings, 50% pass-through uh, resolutions uh, indicating that we will also um, find uh, with following legislations uh, to stop the pass-through to tenants um, and then also the senior population findings. And with that, a roll call, please. Apologies, well, on that motion. Well, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, and uh, on that motion to amend items uh, 10 and 11 as just so stated by the chair. Uh, Member Safai, Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Uh, we have two ayes with uh, Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, the motion passes. I'd like to make the motion to um, table items eight and nine and a roll call, please. And on the motion to table item, uh, uh, items eight and nine, uh, Member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. 
Thank you, and would like to continue uh, the item 10 and 11 to the next board meeting. And with that, a roll call, please. On the motion to continue uh, the resolution in item 10 and the ordinance in item 11 to the November 1st meeting of this committee. As amended. Uh, as amended, yes. <laughs> Thank you, President Peskin. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chairman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. And Mr. Clerk, do we have any other uh, other items before us uh, today? Apologies, Madam Chair, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, let's see, in item number two, the BLA did have a recommendation that we amend it uh, to be retroactive. I don't think we took that amendment. So if-, if Item number 10? Uh, number two. Oh, sorry, do, yes. uh, do we need to resend that vote? Uh, yeah, I mean, if. If you can make a motion to uh, resend re the vote without objection. Yes. And then uh, let's uh, amend the item number two and send it to full board with recommendation. As recommended by the BOA. Yes. By the BOA. yes. And so yes. Uh, Roll call. Yes. The last the last vote was amended, and we are now amending okay. the resolution in item number two how to add retroactive language and to forward to the full board as amended with positive recommendation. Mm -hmm. Vice Chair Safai. Oh, sorry, a member Safai. <laughs> Chair Chan. Aye. <laughs> uh, Chan, I. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. And the meeting is adjourned. <laughs>